Good morning. Romans 1, 16 through 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these thing, very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. You guys want to trade places? <laughs> Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I confess I am a man guilty of the things listed in that paragraph. I confess I am a man in deeply in need of you, and I confess on behalf of our church that we are people deeply in need of you. And maybe even right now, especially, we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and give us ears to hear your true heart, that anything that's false and not of you, would, the volume would be turned down on it, that we wouldn't hear it, that it would fall away from our attention. God, we, we, we take your word as being true and we know that it will confront us. And so I pray that you would help us in that confrontation uh, to have humility and to, to listen to your real heart. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we, we ended last week with a question, uh, what are you unashamed of? And... When I hear that, what are you unashamed of, it feels kind of like a juvenile question, like high school level identity question. What are you unashamed of? Are you going to, like, you know, if you grew up in a a Christian home, like, would you wear a Jesus t-shirt to school or something like that? But I think if you can get past maybe the initial juvenile sense of of that question, um, that we as adults, maybe we don't often think in terms like that anymore, like, what am I unashamed of? I think the question can help us, because if we'll really ask it in the truth of our of our inner being, uh, it's a question that, that, that says, what are the things that I want to be known about me? So you can even just begin to answer it honestly in your mind, right? thankfully knowing no one can hear your thoughts. What are the things I want to be known about me? What, what, what do I want to be known for? On the billboard of my life, what do I want to be represented there? When my time is over, what do I want to be true at my funeral? What do I want to be able to be said with integrity there? You might run through the list, honestly. Like, what are things that are central to my identity? Is it my achievements? Is it my political stances? 
Is it my education? Is it my sophistication, my way to operate in the world? Is it my sexuality? Is it that I believe I have arrived at some level of elite status in my place in the world? Is it like, I'm just fun to be around? <laughs> is it my art? What, what is the thing that I want to be known about myself? What, we, we, we you know, maybe think more often things I am ashamed of. What are you unashamed of? What do you... What do you want most to be true, central to your identity? We come to the question because it's mentioned in this first section of the Apostle Paul's letter to the capital of the world, to the followers of Jesus in Rome. This Roman citizen, Saul of Tarsus, had had a profound encounter with Jesus of Nazareth and and his whole life was changed. Uh, he began to travel the world to, to, to communicate the message of Jesus, and he, he, he opens this letter a few sentences in by saying, I'm unashamed of the euangelion. I'm unashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ. I'm unashamed of the gospel. It, 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 he was so certain that this good news about Jesus was the very best thing that had ever happened in the world, that it could literally change lives, that it has changed his, that it could change families, that it could change uh, communities, cities, that it could even change the world. It could unite us together in family with God and family with one another in in a way that humanity had never experienced before. He was willing to make central to his very identity this message of Jesus he would actually you know, say it was worth giving everything for, and then he would give everything for it. He, he died. He died for the message of the gospel, which is, which is something. So Paul was certain the good news was, was just that, good news. And I, the only reason I'm mentioning, Romans is so dense, like the, the sections we're breaking off could be broken up even so much more. I mean, there are, there's the, the word righteousness in this passage, diakasune. John Piper and N.T. Wright have written books back and forth to one another, arguing about the translation of that word. So we could be spending way more time than we are. We're, we're, we're taking on too much. But the only reason I'm referencing last week's message when we have so much to do this week is because Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel because it is good news. I want that to be squarely in your minds because for the next three and a half chapters, it's like all bad news. It's, it's really rough. Uh, by chapters four, we see a little turn. By, by chapter five, especially, we're gonna get back into some incredibly good news. That, that, that's the main message of Paul's letter to, to Rome, to the capital of the world, to all of us. But before that, Paul is going to systematically level out everyone who thinks they can get along fine on their own without God. He's going to go one step at a time through all of us. If you're reading in the NIV, which is the translation we use most often here uh, of the New Testament, the second section of Romans, you'll notice there's a little, little section heading there on the second, beginning in verse 18. It's a thrilling title, God's Wrath Against Sinful Humanity. Did you bring a guest today? Doesn't that just sound like a sermon you don't want to miss? Bring a friend along for. In fact, maybe when the teaching text was being read, we have to be honest. What was your th- what was your th- thought process as that was being read? Some of you might have tensed up a little bit. <laughs> like, oh, I certainly tensed up a little bit. Some of you might have said, "Oh no, here we go. This is exactly why I don't like church." This is exactly why I can't believe fully, wholeheartedly in this God stuff because it's too restrictive. It's too repressive, it's judgmental, it's, it's out of touch with what we understand in our modern advances of, of, of science and personhood and philosophy. It, it flat out doesn't sound loving at all. And I want to say it may be fair to think those things when you just hear that section of scripture read. It is very, very challenging. I want to say two things, though, that I want to ask you to keep in mind. One is the whole context of the letter is grace abounds. The whole context of the letter is astonishingly good news worth giving your entire life for that can unite you to God like a family member, like that he would love you in the same way he loves his, 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 his son Jesus, that you'd be brought in no matter, no matter what you've done or who you are, that you can be brought in and made family. And then you can be made family with one another in such a, a profound and compelling way that, that that type of love that would literally change the world. That's the context of the letter. The second thing is this section in particular is about God being revealed. So I want you to keep those two things in mind, even though this, especially when we get into like the list of behaviors, it becomes really confronting and really challenging. 
So I went back to include those first two verses, 16 and 17, about being unashamed and about God being revealed because, um, because I didn't want to start with, with, with the wrath of God being revealed and then you forget that just before that, just a sentence before that, it said that the righteousness of God has been revealed, the grace of God has been revealed in the person of Jesus. So we know when we read our, our scriptures that we have the numbers and the chapter divisions and the headings, but they wouldn't have been in the original letter. And sometimes, even as helpful as they are for finding things, they can throw us off the thought pattern of the, of the author and get us a little bit outside of the original intention. If you start just with verse 18, you forget that we're in a section about God being revealed. So listen to these verses together. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's a gift. It's, it's not something that you can earn. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what are we saying? God is being revealed. We're beginning to hear pieces of what that would mean for God to be revealed. We've just heard that the righteousness of God has been revealed. What, what, is that, what does that word diakasune mean? It's the, the covenant keeping, that, so God's promise keeping nature, his holiness, his goodness, his truth is being revealed in a message called the gospel, called good news. And it has been stated that, that that nature, that you can have access to it, that you can have access to fully participate as a son or daughter of God in the very nature of God, that his, his nature, the qualities that are true about God would become true about you because you would share in such an intimate relationship through this good news. And the way, way it happens is by something called faith. And this is going to be explored throughout the rest of the letter. But basically fully counting on this good news as if it's true, not just for other people, but true for you. And living as if it's true begins to give you access to this relational reality with God that transforms your very character to be like God. So those are the good things that we've just, we've just heard. And now... Another aspect of God is being revealed. This is not a new God being revealed. It's an aspect of God's character that somehow also works with God's righteousness. So, the wrath of God, as awful as it may sound to us, is a part of the overall good news about God being revealed. Not convinced? Well, I've got nine more pages. So, imagine a trusted friend came up to me and said that they had seen my wife, Allison, and they had seen her walking along the park, holding hands with another man and leaning with her head against his shoulder. They just came up and said, I just think that you should know this, and they left that information with me. What would my response be? What's just happened to me? Well, I've heard something that is deeply disturbing. I've heard something that's outside of the character of what I know of Allison thus far, and I'm disturbed and I'm not sure what, what to do. I, have a, I think I have a couple of, maybe four options of response. The first is I can ignore it. Say, no way, I'm not, I'm, I just refuse to hear that. I don't want anything to do with that. I, I ignore that information. I'm not gonna listen to it at all. The second is I can believe it and reject her and like be first to the punch and say, she's, she's being unfaithful, I've heard it, I don't need any more, and just I absolutely re re reject her and I express my anger and resentment, frustration and pain to her. Third option is I can attack the witness and say, what are you trying to do? Who, who are you? Why are you just try, trying to break in and distort my relationship with my wife? Who, who are you to say something like this? What gives you the right to come over and, and even mention, don't, don't keep your wife, my wife's name out of your mouth, like, or I can go to her and seek clarity. I can ask her what was going on. I mention that because I think the same options are available to you when you come across a really challenging passage like the second half of Romans 1. Those same options are open to you. In a sense, you've just been dealt a blow. It sounds like this doesn't sound to me like the God I want to believe in or this doesn't sound to me like the God I've heard about in other parts of the scripture who wants everyone to be rescued, who wants everyone to be saved. God so loved the world that anyone who believes in him, so why does this sound so condemning? I've just heard something that deals a blow to my confidence. Maybe this God isn't who I thought he was. What are my options? 
The first is to say, I'm not gonna listen to those parts of the Bible. (laughs) If I come across a part that confronts me with something that I don't wanna hear about God, I just skip over and say, I'm not reading that part, I'm gonna ignore it. We also might, we might just go to the full-on rejection. This is exactly what I thought church people would say. This is, the, this is why I've avoided this message. I reject it outright. I want nothing to do. If Jesus comes along with this type of thing, I want nothing to do with it. Or we can attack the messenger. And this is a really, this is, especially with Paul, this is a big one. Like, I like Jesus. He's nice. He wears Birkenstocks. He carries lambs around. But Paul is a racist bigot, and I don't want anything to do with his version of Christianity. So give me Jesus, and, and I throw away Paul. But it's not really being true to who Jesus is or who Paul is because they go together and Paul is giving a a practical application of what the gospel of Jesus is in the world inspired by the Holy Spirit. Or we can do this. We can go to God and say, help. Help me understand this. I'm confronted by something that's really challenging that doesn't fit in a lot of ways with my cultural moment. What do I do? How do I sort this out? And we can go to the source, go to God and say, will you, will you help? <laughs> will you help me understand what's happening here? And that's, that's what I wanna commend to us. Where you go with your questions matters. What are your authoritative sources for what life is all about, for what makes a good life, for how we can know and relate to God. Now, back to the wrath of God. Very exciting. This sentence, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Let's just break that sentence down. We don't need a commentary. Let's just say as simply as we can, what is being said here? What does this mean? The first thing it seems to mean is that there are some things that God is against. There are some things that God is against. God is against, in particular, godlessness and wickedness. Another way to say that is God is against it when people act and think and believe as if God is not there. God is against it when people act and think and believe as if God is not there. And and I would go further to say because he is there and that would be to go against some true reality of nature and set you up for disappointment and failure. So God is against the types of life that grow out of acting and thinking and believing as if God is not there. So what are we saying? Whatever God's wrath is, and we're going to try to understand it together to some degree, it's some, some true aspect of God's nature being revealed that also goes along with him being good news for the entire world, is that God is against people acting, thinking, and believing as if God is not there, and he's against the type of life that flows out of considering God as if he is not there. So the further explanation, right, we're right in the same sentence there, is that there's a way to live that suppresses the truth about reality. There is a way to live your life that suppresses the truth about reality. Okay, very simply, what does it mean to suppress the truth about reality by the way you live? You're going to hear more about it later in even this section, but I think it must at least mean making choices that refuse to acknowledge some true aspect of reality, right? We're saying very simple, making choices that refuse to acknowledge some true aspect of reality. So in, 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 in the list that's to come, I'll give you a couple of examples. It means to treat sex in a way that refuses to acknowledge the other person has a soul. It's, it's to, to, to think and treat and act sexually as if the other person is just a body and not a soul made in the image of God. Or that God has given us this incredible gift, that God is, is, has given us the gift of sexuality, but given it to us with parameters for how it can bring life and how it can do damage. And to to make choices that suppress reality would be to make, a ch- make choices that, that ignore, ignore that aspect. Another example, it means to look at what your neighbor has achieved or possessed as something that should be yours because of the intensity of your desire for it. Envy, right? It's to say, I, I deserve that. I deserve that good thing that came to them. It should have come to me. And to resent them for it. That is to... That is to is one of the examples of how, how we make a choice to suppress the true reality of our world by how we act. It means to treat your parents. Did you see disobedient to parents was in there? It means to treat your parents as if you could have lived in the world without them having been involved at all. I just showed up here. Leave me alone. I want to say that I think it basically means to make choices as if you can see as far into the results of those choices as God can. 
To make choices as if you can see as far into the results of those choices as God can. It means to take life, to sow contention, to be driven by lust, to intentionally deceive, to tear apart another person's reputation for the sake of venting your own frustration. These are ways that the scripture is saying we're suppressed the reality about being made in the image of God, about, about God's goodness and character and, and true reality that's, that's woven through the world, that we're, we're going contrary to that reality when we make these types of choices. And this is what God is, is against. He is against, he is in opposition to the summary At the end of the chapter is this. Living life without God is living without understanding, fidelity, love, and mercy. So whatever else you think God is saying in in this passage, what what he's claiming in, in the summary statement at the end is, there's a certain type of life that ignores my reality in the world, and there's a lifestyles, there are lifestyles that flow out of ignoring that reality in the world, and ultimately the summary of them is that they, they, they remove wisdom, they remove faithfulness, they remove love and mercy from your life in, in the most full and intentional way that you're meant to share in them as sons and daughters of God. So whatever else God is against, he's against a life without wisdom, understanding, love, and mercy. God is determined one day to have a world where this type of destructive living is no more and he wants to get rid of those things in the world without getting rid of us. So, I think we might have it really wrong when we assume that God's wrath is like the quick anger of a father who's furious at a child's misbehavior and is more akin to the grief of a father whose child is feeling as if life is not worth living anymore. The grief of a father who sees their child settling for some meager half-life when real world joy is being offered to them that's that's lasting, that's, that's true. It's the famous C.S. Lewis quote about making mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine what the offer of a holiday at the sea would be. That our desires are not too strong but too weak and too easily satisfied. That that's the thing that breaks God, God's heart. And, 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 and the wrath of God that's revealed in this passage is not the furious father who's ready to dole out punishment, but it's the grieving father who says, have your way. It's the grieving father who says, have your way. What's revealed in this passage is the passive wrath of God to say, you, you, you want to be your own God, I'll let you. N.T. Wright says this, God's wrath does not mean that God is malevolent, capricious, liable to lose his temper and flash out wildly. Quite the reverse. As we shall see, in ch- see later, God is kind, patient, and forbearing. But he cares passionately about his world and his human creatures. And if there are types of activity which deface, damage, and destroy the world and human beings, God will not let them go on forever. Rape, murder, torture, and economic oppression, the list could go on and indeed will go on later in the chapter. God hates them all. He is angry about them all. Let's be quite clear. If he were not, he would not be a good God. He is not in the business of saying something is perfectly all right when it in fact has a fatal disease. So, summary statement. We're gonna get technical today for a little while and I hope that that that'll be okay. The summary statement is that God's wrath is against living without understanding, without fidelity, without love, and without mercy. Why? Why? Why is that to suppress reality? I, I, I know I'm, I've said this in one way. I want to say it in one more. It's because here's the true reality of God's character. If to, to live disconnected from God is to live disconnected from understanding, wisdom, love, and mercy. That means central and true to God's identity and character is that God is perfect in wisdom, perfect in fidelity, perfect in love, and perfect in mercy. I want you just to consider these four attributes of God's character for, for a second. Perfect in wisdom. What, 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 what can we say about that? What would it mean for a being to be outside of time and to know the consequences of every choice in every direction? To have a full and complete knowledge of everything before and after. What manner of perspective would that be? God is perfect in wisdom. God is also perfect in fidelity. He's faithful to his own character, right? God in his desire to bring you and I into relationship with him is not willing to be unfaithful to his true nature. So the riddle of the gospel is how does God embrace a sinful, broken humanity all the way in as sons and daughters and family 
when, when our character is not holy in and of itself. Well, he's going to make us holy. How is he going to do that? By the cross. And this is the message of the gospel that's, that's gloriously uh, laid out for us later, later in, this, in this letter. But he's perfect in fidelity. He's faithful to his own character. He's faithful to his own promises. He's perfect in love, right? Whenever we, whatever we're going to say later in this message, will you remember this? Perfect in, in wisdom, perfect in fidelity, perfect in love. Love is central to God's very being. We say this all the time. Our church got its name from this reality, this prayer in John 17, that Jesus said, Father, let them have a share in the glory that we shared before the foundations of the world. Let the, let, we, are, we are Trinity, one God and three persons. And will you, will you let that community go out and bring them in to have a share in this thing that we've shared from the foundations of the world? What is that? It's being drawn into the very character of God's love. And then perfect in mercy. God loves to show mercy. God loves to welcome you home. God loves to erase the record of your wrong. God loves to throw your worst mistake into the sea of forgetfulness. God loves to put all of your brokenness as far as the east is from the west. God loves to show mercy. So Paul is making this case that God is revealing himself and this revealing is, is something that's true about the substance of reality. To go against it is to suppress the nature of reality and it leads to devastating consequences. In fact, he says, if you'll pay attention to the natural world, you will see that God has been revealing himself. This is a part when I, I stumbled over this a little bit. I mean, there's a lot to stumble over in this, but l- listen to this sentence. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that, we, so that people are without excuse. How does that sit with you? <laughs> right, let's reflect on that for a minute. Is that, it, What does that statement mean in the the most simple possible understanding? That true qualities about God can be seen by observing the natural world. So thought experiment, I want you to uh, uh, try to imagine being alive to this point in your life and considering if you'd never been told anything about God or a divine being, would you be able to tell anything about God's existence or nature from looking at creation? Right? Challenges in this thought experiment are it's very difficult to have to consider never having heard of God when we've heard so much about God. It's always difficult to remove our preconceptions, but let's try anyway. Also, I think it's worth mentioning that deep reflection on the nature of reality is in short supply in our world these days. We are as equipped as any generation ever to ignore the natural world and to live in a chaos of distraction, right? I can, I can read the news on the toilet. I can play Candy Crush on the train. I can scroll through my Instagram as my head is on the pillow. When am I considering how the tree reflects the nature of a divine being? Almost never. But here we've got some space in this beautifully fluorescent lit middle school some trees out there. Could you see imprints of a divine being by looking at nature? You can keep running this thought experiment later into the day. I'm gonna, I'll keep saying some things about the sermon. I think we can have some pieces of substantial and important information about what sort of things we might come up with if we ran that thought experiment to its end. Our ancestors, for instance, without Instagram, looking at the natural world and asking questions, have came up with all manner of divine beings and mythologies and things to worship based on looking at the, at the natural world. The two attributes of God that are said to be true, revealed in creation in particular, are his eternal power and divine nature. Those two things, Paul is saying, are revealed in creation so that it's true that if you were born in a place that never heard the message of the gospel that there's some gospel that nature itself is is speaking to us that if we pay attention to it we might even hear the whisper of God in the middle of it I I had an experience how about the video venue last week anyone was here last week a few people too two people thank you returning guests some of these people left because we had a video last week instead of a live sermon I happened to experience uh, some of the most, I was away last week, so we had a video sermon, if you missed that. 
And I happened to experience some of the most astounding natural beauty that I've ever seen. I took my son Elijah on a hike through the the mountains in New Hampshire, the presidential traverse, these seven mountain peaks named after presidents. And the highest peak, Mount Washington, is the highest peak on the East Coast. We were in the mountains for three full days of hiking, six to eight hours of hiking uh, across these peaks. I apparently was the least fit kid or dad on the trip, which I I learned because I walked by myself a ton of the time. And like everyone's resting and eating snacks and then I'm finally like, they're like, let's go. And I'm like, no, no, please, let's rest. Let's rest more. But what it did, walking alone, what a bonding trip with my son. (laughs) I see you, you're on the next peak, I'm gonna be fine. I was walking along the ridge. We got above the tree line where you could just see out forever like mountains upon mountains you see the green turn into blue turn into purple turn into sky and it was astounding just to take it all in I was trying to imagine being the first person to lay eyes on this right someone named these mountains someone found these trails what would it have been like to see that for the first time my thought process went something like this 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 view is incredible it's 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 majestic there is grandeur here I don't look at this and think I'm huge I mean, I'm thinking like, I'm huge and this is hard, but I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about like, who am I in the midst of this? This massive, beautiful, teeming expanse stretching out before my eyes. There's, There's grandeur here. Could this possibly be just an accident of glaciers moving? Could this just be crust plates ramming together or weather, weather patterns and the carving force of rivers, right? Even if I choose that, right? This is how we know this is how the mountains are formed. Even if I choose that, I find myself wanting to personify it to some degree, right? And so you hear even people who don't believe in God where they say mother nature, like you gotta make a person out of it. Like she's an artful craftswoman, look what she's done. My mind also considered this. These mountains stretch back way before me and they're gonna be here way after me. They are more permanent than I have and they will always be more permanent than I am. And so I began, even in just my short, heavy breathing reflection, I've been considering there's an eternal power at work here. Right? I know that I'm predisposed, but I'm trying to run the thought experiment with integrity, and I'm, I'm thinking there's something that I want to personify here that, that, that made this artistry possible. And then I think, what would be the nature of this eternal shaping power? What wildness and beauty would be true of it? What, what danger? What artistry? Paul is contending that true things about God can be known by looking at the natural world, and many, many, many before you and I have been drawn into nature and they have agreed on some level with him, even if they didn't get all the way to Yahweh. I saw a bumper sticker on my way home from the mountains that said, nature is my church. Paul is contending that you should look out if that's true because God might show up. And the argument goes that if you ignore that revelation, it will lead you to make a fatal exchange. And this is the exchange is described like this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So, Later in this letter, Paul is going to get specific in the ways that the Gentiles have forgotten God and the ways that the Jewish people have forgotten God. But right now, he's treating all of humanity as, as, as one. And he's saying, the trouble is in that each of those groups, they have a knowledge of God, but they will not acknowledge and celebrate God as being God, nor do they give thanks for the things they have received in life as a gift. They treat them as if they somehow had, 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 had gotten them on their own. This lack of acknowledgement and gratitude to God means they have attributed the source and goodness of their life to something other than God. This is the exchange, the fatal exchange he's saying. Instead of lifting your eyes to see the divine being present in in glory and creation, you're you're exchanging it for for something less. You're putting something else in the place where, where, where God is supposed to be. And we've talked about this type of thing, this type of exchange many, many times. I'm not gonna go into it too much. But you give credit to something. You give worship, attention, devotion, and affection to something in your life. Even if it's not God, we are worshipers. You you worship something. 
The claim being made here is that refusal to see God as God and to have a heart of gratitude opens you up to two things, futile thinking and a foolish heart. So I want to just say for a second what I think futile thinking and a foolish heart are and know that we're getting close to the end of this outline. How do you feel about that? Okay, great. I'm going to read some of this exactly because I want to be really precise in this language. There are patterns of thinking, futile thinking. There are patterns of thinking that limit the capacity of your imagination to entertain hope, to escape selfishness, and to love truly as God intends you to. There are types of thinking that if you continue down them and you allow them to sort of pervade your mindset, they will limit your, your imagination's capacity to entertain hope, to escape selfishness, and to love in the way God intends you to. The first time you have a thought of insecurity come in your mind, it says, says that you're not enough. How young are we, right? We, maybe we're able to brush it off that we're not loved enough, that we're never going to be enough, that the good things in life are for someone else, right? We brush that off quickly, but the thought can return. And it can replay. And if we allow it to replay over and over again, eventually it can come to define our, our reality. We become anxious and depressed that we're not enough, that we're never going to be loved. And right, it, it, that futile thinking, right? We, we don't have a higher authority to contradict our mindset. What do, by what authority do you say to yourself, no, I am enough. No, I am loved. So you go out into the world to get those questions of your mind answers in a, in, in a bunch of different ways. And Paul's saying that's futile because ultimately you need a higher authority to speak to even the, the, the lies of your own thoughts. When a lie plays long enough in our minds, it can shape our reality and we can lose the imagination to believe something else. I think this is close to futile thinking. Another aspect of futile thinking is that we can, we can set our, uh, ourselves along a thought pattern that even to achieve the highest thing that we're dreaming of would not be to satisfy our souls. It's to set something up in your mind that if, even if you could achieve the highest thing that you can think of, it would still not lead to a satisfaction of your soul and, and the being that you were made to be. In a sense, the highest thing that we could realistically think of wanting would still be somehow shallow and devoid of the fullness of life that God intends. Futile thinking is when we have given up on being satisfied and we have begun to give in to despair. Futile thinking is when the best thing that you're looking for in life has no chance of meeting the deepest longings of your soul because your sights have been set too dangerously low. So what does that look like? It means you fixated like worship level attention and adoration and devotion on something like getting the promotion or, or beating the game or a sexual conquest or a larger apartment or a better wardrobe or a slimmer waist or a word of recognition or a better review or return on your investment. Not as a beautiful addition to, be, uh, to, to, to your life, not as something to be thankful for, but as life itself. That is futile thinking, to set something up that even when you achieve it does not have the capacity to satisfy you in the way God is intending. The claim is our minds were made for the eternal expanse of a God who has no end. You know, you know why like, your dream car isn't your dream car like three years after you get it? Because you've exhausted it, you've come to the end. Your mind, your heart, your soul was made for the eternal expanse of a God who you're gonna be continually and eternally surprised by even as you get to know God through and through throughout eternity. Like, that you could never come to the end of exploring this God and being known by this God. The futile thinking is to set something else that's way more limited and finite in the place where God is supposed to be. Foolish hearts are similar. A foolish heart is a heart shaped by desires that cannot lead to what the heart truly needs most. Things have worked their way into the catalog of our desires that cannot fulfill and enliven our hearts but actually deaden our longings. The thing that first thrilled you now is boring to you. And our hearts become deadened. So I think we've said enough about that. If you are committed to living your life without God, you're dead set on it. The heartbreaking part of this passage is that God will let you. He very well may let you just live your life as you want to live it and say, I'll be my own God. That's the heartbreak of God's wrath. And we know it's heartbreaking because God loves to show mercy. But if you are set up and determined to ignore his revelation to you, then you will set her for another type of life. And now we get to the most difficult part of the passage. 
You'll settle for another type of life, and the description of that life is where the controversy is in this text. And I've saved it for the end, so if you're bored now, you'll perk up. The first thing I want to say is these, de- these behaviors describe all of us. It says, therefore, this is the, the, wrath of, the passive wrath of God expressed. We're determined to be our own gods. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creative things rather than the creator who is ever praised. Amen. If you will not have God for God, you will have something else. Something will be your authority. Something will shape your vision of life. And so ask yourself, what is it? Back into our inner monologues again. What will you take as your authority if you don't take God? The law? The law of your preferences? Anything I want as long as it doesn't hurt someone else? Maybe I don't always know if it's hurting someone else. My culture, the cultural norms that we're marketed to with intensity and regularity relentlessly, we're, we're given our space in our cultural moment and to, to transgress against that feels like, can be very painful. Maybe it's just how I was raised. What is the thing that you give authority to that says this is what life is and this is what life is about? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do, not continue, they do not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. St. Augustine said that sin is a warping of our desires. That if you take God out of that that. that place, that central stabilizing place in the center of our life that we begin to bend in on one another in in all manner of selfishness. And that's what's described here. It is the insistence that we need something else more than we need God. And whatever that thing is, God is willing to confront it because that thing will ruin you and it will also sow pain into the world. So many of these things are not just something that affects you personally, the bending in of your own warped desires, but it affects the world around you. It sows injustice, it sows corruption, it sows brokenness, it sows violence. So often our sin carries their own consequences. Now, we have to say a few things, don't we? People have used this passage to do great harm to one another by mentioning and acting as if some of the things listed in the, in the passage are entirely worse than others. Usually, the ones we commit, we make the least important, and the ones other people out there, the other commit, we, we see as horrific. But there it is. Sexual sin is listed right alongside gossip. Both have, have a capacity to deform our humanity and to sow discord and profound harm into our community. If you treat someone like they're just a body and not a soul, you do a profound damage to them, to yourself, and to the community. And when behind someone's back you slander their reputation for the sake of venting your frustration, you do profound harm to yourself, to them, and to the community. Sexual sin and gossip are, are in the same list. Murder is there right alongside envy. If you hate God and you're boastful, they're both right there together. The summary is that without God, you will end up living with no understanding, no faithfulness, no love, and no mercy. So, people almost always ask me at Enter to Trinity Grace, what is your church's position on homosexuality? You know, I've never once gotten the question, what is your church's position on envy? I've never gotten the question, what is your church's position on being disobedient to your parents? When exactly is the line. 
So when I get that question, what is your church's position on homosexuality? I usually have two follow-up questions. Because I think what, the heart of what the person's asking usually falls in one of two columns. And the first one is, are gay people welcome at this church? And the answer to that question is, they absolutely are. We have wonderful gay friends in, in, in our church now and have you know, throughout all the years of our church in our neighborhood. So let me say this explicitly as I can. If you are gay, you are welcome at this church. If you are greedy, you are welcome at this church. If you are a gossip, you are welcome at this church. If you slander others, you are welcome at this church. If you are arrogant, you are welcome at this church. But of course, that leads to the second category of questions, which is people want to know, do you think homosexual practice is a sin? And this is my true answer. I do not determine that. I truly do not mean that as a cop-out whatsoever, but I say it as a statement of theology. People do not determine what sin is. God does. And that has really important implications. I see myself as under the authority of the revelation of God in Scripture. So my, my choice is not to say these things, these types of behavior, I'm taking out of the category of sin and, and moving into the category of God is fine with this. This is God's best for you. I can't do that. That's not, I don't have the authority to do that. I see myself as under the revelation. All of us, one, one of the core statements of our church is we believe the Scriptures are true and authoritative for our life and practice. So I, I have the authority of the Scripture to, uh, to be accountable to and the authority of the God behind the Scripture to be accountable to. If there were things that God asked me to determine if they were sin or not, I promise you there would be several that I would take out of the column right away. Overeating and overdrinking are now totally fine. They're in. When I was hiking in this, this, uh, this terrain in New Hampshire, I got a taste of, of, of a bunch of different types of sort of views, like there were really narrow views in the forest. We were walking along this creek bed and you couldn't see three steps in front of you. And then there was above the tree line, as I mentioned before, where you could see like, you could see multiple states. You could see Maine and Vermont, depending if you swiveled your head. I think that God has a more expansive view than I do. And what I mean by that is I think that God knows the end results of our choices all the way down the line in a way that you and I do not. And so that's why I'm willing to submit to God's revelation about what's best for human beings in, in, in our behavior, whether it's, it's sexual, whether it's to do with finances, whether it's to do with power. I have to, there are things that I come up against and I don't like them, but I don't have the authority to say, God doesn't think this anymore because I don't like it. And, and very often I've found that when I submit to even the hardest parts of God's revelation, I find after I go down the line that there are incredible life in them that I didn't see before and that would have been completely unexpected. It's like I was in the forest and then I came around and I came out of the tree line and I saw something that I, I couldn't have seen before. So I ultimately have to, cho to choose to believe this. God is perfect in wisdom. God is perfect in, in faithfulness. God is perfect in love. And God is perfect in mercy. So that's what I want our church to be. Perfect in wisdom, perfect in faithfulness, perfect in love, perfect in fidelity. No matter who you are or what you wrestle with whatsoever, you are loved and welcomed in this community. We're gonna sort it out together as we follow Jesus. But I don't have the authority to take something out of the category of sin and move it to another category. That's on God. And if the answer is, well, if that's the case, I'm gonna dismiss God. That is a choice open and available to you. Or I'm gonna dismiss you for saying that. But my, I want you to know we don't have a position because, like a publicly stated position on these controversial issues because I, we have people. And what I wanna know is, is your story. And what I hope you'll wanna find out about one another is, is your story that you wanna sit down and, ha, and, have, and have coffee and have conversation and learn to really truly wrestle with the guts of what it is to be a human being in a world that's broken, in a world where we're perpetually likely to put something in the place that God is, whether that's our sexual identity or our, our career achievements or, or whatever it is. We're, we're perpetually tempted to put something else there and all of us do it. So what should we have for one another? Massive amounts of grace and mercy. 
that if God in, 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 in the poetry of the creation story said, it's not good to be alone, that there's some mutuality in the genders that is, is truly important to us thriving as human beings, truly important for, this, for the species going on, truly important. And if there's wisdom in that that, that is, seems harsh to me or seems like I struggle with it, I'm, I, I'm gonna try to hold it in tension with what else I know about God, that he's perfect in wisdom, perfect in fidelity, perfect in love and perfect in mercy. And I'm gonna try to embody those things the way God does. I think sometimes we settle for a shallow grasp of love and a distorted view of freedom. The shallow grasp of love that I think we, we share culturally is essentially this, that love just means affirmation of someone else's choices. Like you love me if you just accept everything that I do. But that's, that's, that's not a thorough and substantial enough definition of love. And God will confront us and say, Every instinct of your heart is, is, is not pure and good and leading to the best. <laughs> a more full vision of love is a God who says, I'm willing to, to, to forgive everything that you've ever done wrong and to make you like me in wisdom, faithfulness, love, and mercy. I'm willing literally to die, shed my blood to bring you in. That's the expression of, of, of our God of love. It's, it's more deep than just, oh, this is what you want to do. I, have, I, I think it's the right thing. A distorted view of freedom, what do we mean by that? I think a distorted view of freedom is being able to do whatever happens to cross my mind in a given moment. That's the vision of freedom, that I have the upward mobility to satisfy any appetite that comes across my, my palate. That's, that's freedom. And anything that hinders me from doing that and expressing myself in the way that I want is a limitation on my freedom. That's not the biblical view of freedom. The biblical view of freedom is that you would live in the most full, flourishing, thriving way in a, in a, relational, in a, in a relational web deeply connected to knowing God, loving God, and deeply connected to loving your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus said to summarize all of it, he said, love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. God's wrath is part of the good news because God is making, making a certain type of world where he will remove evil and injustice and brokenness and he wants to do that without removing us. I wanna pray for us and go to the table in just a moment. Now, I literally have never done this before and it seems like a terrible idea as even I'm thinking of it but I'm gonna maybe try it. Because I want to make sure that we've been as clear as we can. So does anyone have any questions? Please, please hear me say this, even if you're thinking of a question. I want this church to be the most welcoming place on the earth. I want, it, I want, I want us to, to look at one another and to know every single one of us is fighting a, a, a public and a hidden struggle in a way that you can't fathom. When I think about the, the types of things that we've all faced as we've grown up in different types of homes. When I think about the ways that we've been formed by our world, by uh, abuses done to us, by wounds, eyes, idols and addictions, all, all manner of things. I think about my own story. I think about yours. I, I want people to get to Jesus and find how astonishingly loving he is. Like, when Jesus caught people red-handed, like remember the woman who was caught red-handed in, in, in adultery and dragged out to be stoned? What did Jesus do? He said, first of all, he, 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 he unified the crowd by letting everyone know, let you who has no sin cast the first stone. So he put us all on the same level. And then he embraced her and says, who condemns you? And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. And both of those things are true. Jesus, God, is the one who determines sin. So he's the one who can say, go and sin no more. And then I can be in the mix with all of you and all of us in the mix with one another and say, we absolutely need love and mercy and grace and goodness from God to be okay. And there is wisdom in God's sight that I can't see. And I love you all. And if you want to have coffee or talk about this or you want more resources about the, the Bible's sexual ethic, I'm willing to go as far as you want to go on discussing it, reading about it. I promise you, myself and the other pastors of Trinity Grace have done a ton of work diving into the relevant passages on human sexuality in the scriptures and we can talk about it. 
I'm, this is not the last word that we're given today, but I wanna try to be faithful as your pastor. When we come to something that's challenging, we take it head on. We go a, a little bit at a time and we work through it. And it's not like he obviously clearly avoided that, that subject because it's really hard and it might come across as, as unloving or, 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 or bigoted in some way. That is so far from my heart. And yet we see ourselves under the, under the revelation of God's authority. Given that there are no questions. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, did everyone hear the question? Okay, um, I'll try to restate it. The question was, when you, you said, um, you know, if you're gay, you're welcome. If you're, uh, you know, arrogant or boastful, or were you meaning to put all those in the same category as if since uh, the person asking the question said being gay is not a choice, um, you know, and these, you know, these other things may seem to be in a different category, you know, what do we do, what do, we do about that? Uh, I was mainly intending to say no matter w- w- what you think or believe about this, you're welcome at this church for us to sort it out together. And I think there's going to be people all along the spectrum of, you know, visions of, of, of what, what, what they think the sexual life is supposed to look like inside of this church. I want to say from, from our official church's position that we see ourselves as under the authority of the scriptures, though that's the place that we're going to determine, like, what is and isn't sin. But mostly in that statement, I was just trying to say, whoever you are and wherever you are, you're welcome in this community for us to wrestle with it together. Yeah. Yeah, did you guys hear that question? He was saying, like, um, expressing agreement with the reality that we as human beings don't determine what is and isn't in the category of sin, but some things seem really obvious in the scriptures and some things require more technical interpretation. Um, knowing that this was coming up, uh, I, you know, I, I've, I've done a bunch of reading on this particular passage, but I wasn't in, attempting to do an exhaustive vision of the, of the Bible's, like, vision of sexuality. I can commend some resources to you right now. Some of you guys know uh, John Tyson, who uh, founded the First Trinity Grace in Manhattan. Um, he's pa- pastor of a church called Church of the City um, in, in Midtown right now, still, still a dear friend of ours. And he just did that. He just did an hour and a half expansive walkthrough specifically on human sexuality in a series called The Controversial Jesus. And if you want to hear the passages broken down um, that specifically deal with, with, with sexuality. You can hear those on that talk. And then there's also a bibliography of resources that you can go through that sort of do that interpretive work and say, here's someone who reads this this way, here's someone who reads this this way, and you know, d- does, does the wrestling. If you're interested in that, I would commend that talk to you. And you know, if there's a, an, enough demand, we could put together an evening where we do something similar to that and, and walk through. I'm I'm just trying not to skip the part of Romans that we were coming to and to address it. I don't think, I certainly don't think homosexuality is the main point of this passage whatsoever, so that's why we didn't make it the main point of this sermon. Um, but anyway, a, a good question. We could probably take one more. Yeah. Right. Does anybody hear the question there? She's saying the thing that trips her up in the passage is, is not the relationships that are described, but the fact that they're described as lustful and like j- just sort of like considering the other person as a, as a sexual partner and, not, and nothing more. And that, uh, that actually is specifically dealt with in, in that talk that I'm, I'm referencing. And there's a whole bunch of commentary specifically on Romans 1. What type of sexuality are they discussing? And, and you'll get like progressive views and historical views on, on, on both of those. It's probably more than we can do in this Q&A. Um, but... That, that is, you know, there is information and resources available to help with that specific question because that's something that comes up in the interpretation of this passage quite a bit. So I, there's, it will be on the Church of the City. I almost never send people to other churches' podcasts, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> this is a day of humility. I, I, like, we're in this together. I, I, don't, I don't have all the answers. I'm trying to sort it out as faithfully as I can. Um, I want you to know pastorally, uh, oh, sorry, what I was going to say is it's on their podcast, also on YouTube, if you're looking for Church of the City, um, Controversial Jesus, uh, there's two, two, two different talks on human sexuality in there. If you want to talk about this further, uh, get coffee with me, uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that, and I just want to tell you that I love you, and I love being your pastor, and I hope that uh, you will know that I wrestle with this, 
uh, prayed about this, had my friends uh, praying for me about this, this talk, and that, um, yeah. Ultimately, what we're gonna do now is go to the communion table where Jesus' body is broken and his blood is shed so that everyone can come home to the embrace of his love forever. So let me pray uh, for communion, uh, and then we're just gonna go right into communion today uh, because we did Q&A, we never do that, and now we're short on time. Um, so I'm gonna pray for us, then, we'll, then I'll invite you forward to receive communion, and then we're just gonna end our time worshiping God together. I know that many different things could linger in our memory from what we've just reflected on together. I pray that maybe first and foremost, there would be a sense from your Holy Spirit that we could know your perfect in understanding, perfect in faithfulness, perfect in love, perfect in mercy. God, I know that even on some of the questions we just had, there would be disagreement in this room. And that's nothing new to you. But I thank you that even with disagreement, we can still be in a community in love together and we can come to the table together. I thank you for this communion table. May we deeply commune with you and commune with one another this morning. Thank you for your broken body and shed blood. Thank you that right before you were betrayed by your friends and abandoned, you shared a meal with them where they would know the covenant of grace. There's nothing we can do to outrun your love. I thank you for that. So bless this church. Help us to grow in maturity and understanding, love and and faithfulness and mercy. Show us the ways by your Holy Spirit that we should respond to what we've heard today. In Christ's name, amen.